Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 363 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So excited today to have John Tyson back. And if you know who he is, you know the level of conversation we're in for. Today's episode is brought to you by the Leaders in Living Rooms podcast. Check out Leaders in Living Rooms at Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast. It's one I listen to and by Remodel Health. Visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to learn more about how your organization can save money on health benefits and get access to free resources. Well, it's one thing to talk about what's happening in the world. It's another thing to have the kind of conversation where you can actually analyze what's going on. And uh, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with John Tyson. He's been on before. Uh, as you know, that is a rich vein that we can tap into with John. And uh, he actually is a COVID survivor, talks about how that impacted his family. And we have an interesting conversation about what we might be missing by our desire to rush back to normal. I thought this was one of the most important conversations so far that I've been able to have. And then how to rest deeply in an exhausting era. I think we're all slowly waking up to the fact that, oh my goodness, this isn't, whatever this is, isn't going away right away. And how do you tool up for that? I'll be trying to bring you all kinds of resources on that this fall as well as we head into this. John serves as the lead pastor of Church of the City in New York City. Originally from Adelaide, Australia, he moved to the U.S. 20 years ago. He is the author of The Burden is Light and his latest book, Beautiful Resistance. John, I think, is one of those people who will be read decades from now. And the good news is he's got decades ahead of him in terms of his leadership and also his writing. So thrilled to have him back. Hey, I am a podcast creator. I'm also a listener. And one of the podcasts I've come to love is Leaders in Living Rooms. And Sean Morgan, who's been a friend for the last few years, sits down and interviews church leaders in their living room. I was one of his first episodes. Then, of course, he made the show better. Um, but anyway, hey, there was a great episode I listened to last week on my ride with Sean and Brad Lominick. So it's I, I have high respect for people who interview friends of mine, and Brad's been a friend for years. We actually worked together on some projects. And he was getting Brad to say things that like I've never heard Brad say. And I've spent like so much time with Brad. Really, really good on the future, young leadership. We'll link to that specific episode in the show notes. But if you haven't yet checked out the Leaders in Living Rooms podcast, make sure you do that. Add that to your playlist. It's one that I visit regularly. They've got other leaders like Judd Wilhite, Brady Boyd, Aaron Brockett, David Kinneman, Kenton Bishore, and uh, so many others. And uh, it's not that long. It's like usually half an hour, 40 minutes, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And Man, I'm so excited uh, for what Remodel Health is doing in reshaping healthcare for churches, not-for-profits, and so many others. We are moving into really weird times economically, and you're probably thinking about how you can save money. Well, what if you could actually save money on healthcare and actually meet the same level of benefits or in some cases improve them, and at the same time, still have a lower cost as an employer? By switching organizations from traditional group insurance to individual plans, Remodel Health helps you and your team tap into significant savings on health insurance. So to date, 
People who listen to this podcast alone have saved one and a half million dollars in the last year and a half on their healthcare premium. So imagine what you could do with that extra money in 2021. Right now, it's super challenging. They want to help. They've got some free services and assessments. So go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. Check out what they've got for you today. They've got a free savings calculator there, a church buyer's guide, a brand new ebook, and of course, they'll save you some money. That works for businesses and not-for-profits too, not just churches. So go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry today to check it out. Thanks to our partners for being with us. Welcome all of you who are listening for the first time. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so and uh, share this with your friends. I think you're going to want to share this one. So without further ado, my conversation with John Tyson. John, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me back on, mate. Your, uh, your podcast was the highlight of my podcasting efforts around my last book. So I really enjoyed that conversation and very, very glad to be back. It was a rich conversation. We will link to it in the show notes. And that's one of the things in in the time that we've had together, I always find that uh, the waters run deep and uh, your thoughts really challenge me. And uh, it's just good to have you back. So I want to start here. Um, I mean, here we are, we're recording this in the summer of 2020. You are right in the heart of Manhattan, New York City, and uh, right at the heart of COVID in the United States. And I believe your entire family was infected with COVID. So I wanted to start with just this, like, how has this impacted you? Like, I want to hear a report from the heart of New York City on this crazy 2020 we're having. Yeah, man. <clears throat> I, I was in Hawaii at a YWAM event. And at the start of the week, it was like, I think COVID's going to go a little bit nuts. And by Thursday, I was changing my flight to get back. And then I think I got COVID that Sunday at our live filming that Sunday. So a ton of folks got sick uh, as a result of that. Uh, I was that in New York that you think you yeah, contracted was, it? Yeah. yeah, that was in New York on 45th Street. So you were and doing live worship services. Live, and- live worship I think someone in that room had it. Really? And so this would be, because we all know the dates, that would be like the first weekend of March, like March 9th or so? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's right. And I basically went out for dinner two days later and just felt slightly off and had a sore throat and then woke up at two in the morning and felt like I was dying. Like it was so, it was so visceral and immediate. I remember thinking, I was like trying to do audio voice notes to my kids if I died. I mean, that's it was that real in my mind. So it was that acute. It was that sharp. You're like, I'm not feeling great to like, this might be it. Yes, I thought I am dying. And uh, yeah, woke up at two in the morning, felt like I, I was being run over, not hit by a truck, being run over by it. And um, about 48 hours later, it sort of lifted and then it took me about another 10 days to, you know, get to about 80% health. And then, you know, however, we're probably three months on the other side of that. I'm, I'm basically back, but I do notice some, like some issues with my lungs. My kids basically both slept a little, slept in a couple of days in a row. And that was all they experienced. Like my daughter said, I have a headache. I'm taking a nap. And that was her experience of COVID. My son slept for 16 hours and was like, I think I'm done with COVID. My wife got it after me and she was in bed for a month solid like she was dying. It was 
horrific. And all the advice was don't go to the hospitals because I was just worried about overcrowding. So that they said, unless you cannot breathe. And so there was a couple of times we were like, I think we just need to go in. And so she you didn't like, go to the hospital or did, did you? No, she, she went to the hospital after the COVID flattened. And because she ended up getting um, bilateral pneumonia and then they thought she had blood clots on her lungs. I mean, it was all super hairy. And, yes, yeah, so she did go into the hospital for that, um, but they basically sent her home and said, you know, take these uh, medications. There's not a whole lot more we can do if it gets worse in a week. And that was, yeah, 30-something days and it turned around. And then she got – she's she's now at about 90%. She's not fully back, but she's doing oh my a lot goodness. better. So. And you are pre-existing, like, relatively healthy, under 50 adults who lead an active lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like – I. <laughs> I'm I'm like an out of shape rugby player, but I'm super active. Like I probably, I probably in a typical day walk seven and a half miles. You know, so like today I'm today I've done six miles or whatever. So it's yeah, pretty pretty active, and we just got just got hit by it. So it Do was. You, were uh, you tested for COVID or like you're yeah, assuming yeah, whole, it was COVID? Whole, no, whole family. Yep, whole family uh, was tested. We all have confirmed antibodies, and uh, so that's, so that's pretty, the only positive going forward. But, it's like a New, a New York badge of honor in some sense. It's like someone said to me, put it on your resume. So right. the whole family got COVID and survived 2020. But I, I say that lightheartedly, but there was a lot of people in tremendous trauma. And some of my closest friends were healthcare workers. And I think they have and will have ongoing PTSD. I think that, that what yeah. they saw, they're in trauma and they still don't have the space they're just now coming out of like the adrenaline phase and trying to, you know, turn their brains off and unsee some of the things they've seen. So I think the fallout's going to be a lot longer and a lot harder than a lot of people anticipate. What did that do to you emotionally to be that sick and to have your wife and your, I mean, your kids, it was relatively mild, but your wife that impacted for that long. What did that do to you? Because you're trying to lead a church and pivot a church, like right in the midst of all that. Yeah, I'm still preaching every Sunday. So I preached. So you preached through COVID? Yeah, man. And so I literally got up, gave the talk, had shorts and a T-shirt on, put a blazer on, gave the talk, went back to bed and crashed. Because <laughs> uh, I felt like it was so important. Our church was like going through this cultural shock and transition. I didn't want to put someone else up. Um, what did it do? Oh, man. I mean, it just made me aware of eternity, mortality, vulnerability, fragility. It just, it was so humbling. We are just little mortal beings. Our life is but a breath. All of those things were so real, you know. That's basically what it was. It was like living with a level of awareness of mortality. It's so weird, you know, just to reflect a little bit because we're months out now, but I remember in those first few days and I did not, I, I you know, there's a part of me that, thinks I got COVID because I was in New York two weeks prior to that. I was in Atlanta in early March. I was all over the US. Yeah. And then I had a couple of days where it was more like your kids where I just kind of thought, oh, am I okay? And then I was fine. I'm like, oh, I hope that was COVID, but like I have no way of knowing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, shy of that, scripture was popping in a way it hadn't yeah. popped in years, even though I read it yes. regularly. And it's like, everything was so abnormal. And your routine was so fragile. Even like yeah. you and I were talking before we started recording, you know, speaking career, wiped out, you know, gone in, in a heartbeat. 
And then you're like, well, what am I going to do? And what does my life look like now? And, and, and yet now we've managed to find some semblance of normal. And so many leaders are running back to normal, even if they shouldn't. Any thoughts on that? One of the things I love about it is you always think so deeply about these things. Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, I mean, there's so many ways you could slice it um, sociologically, um, geographically, theologically. There's, there's so many responses people have. And then even in theologically is like, how sovereign is God in this? Is he like meticulously sovereign where he personally oversaw the exact transmission of the virus to the specific people he wanted it to? Did he want this to happen as a form of judgment? Was this something he allowed? I mean, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I don't believe in meticulous sovereignty. So I'm more in the God using it, allowing it um, framework. The thing that I think is so sad, I mean, there's so many ways I could respond, but I think the thing Mm. that's so sad is I I feel like we didn't, in our quest for normalcy, we didn't learn any of the great lessons we needed to learn. I feel like as a whole, we missed them. This, this could have been an absolute revolution. And everybody was like, is this the beginning of a move of God? Look how many people are crying out to God. And I was like, God is so gracious. He will respond to panic prayers. And he often sends things to get us to. But when it all just sort of like, okay, I think we're going to be okay. All those 24-7 prayer meetings just faded off. You know, and all the big efforts just sort of drifted back to, and then the question became, how soon can we reopen? Rather than, I, I looked at a lot of your stuff. You, you were one of the reference points I, I was checking in on. On, no, this is a digital moment. So there's, there's, there's shifts that are happening here that we will never go back from. We will never return to normal. We, we will go back to live gatherings and doing church, but we will never only do that. And um, so I think it's in some ways sad that we missed some of the big lessons, spiritual lessons. I think New York and cities will be irreparably changed for many, many years. But I think for the most part, the church just, and particularly with all the shifts around um, racial injustice, it's like COVID, we're in post-COVID now. Whatever COVID was, that turned in two days, it was like COVID never happened. And so even trying now to respond to racial injustice and diversity, all, all those sort of uh, conversations, COVID's just been pushed aside. And even with uh, all the, the waves coming, you know, like there's a second wave and all that, it seems like it's pretty minimal compared to the um, urgency around uh, racial justice, particularly here in the United States. So that's a, it's a whole nother thing. So whatever was hanging around from COVID sort of disappeared in two days around the issue of racial injustice. And, um, and again, I think it's the church instinct will be excited for a moment and probably won't have the long game we need. God's always doing these moments of awakening. They're invitations into change. And if we don't set the right habits, practices, vision, values deeply enough in that moment of disruption, we will revert back to the previous thing and miss the opportunity. So, Well, I never... What, what, uh... You don't want to make any predictions in 2020 about what this will be like uh, when this airs later in the summer. But as we yeah. record this in late June of 2020, you can almost feel a semblance of the racial injustice conversation not proceeding at the intensity that it was even a few weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, And I, I think, think it should, need- but go ahead. 
yeah, I think we need a weather event and then probably there'll be a terrorist attack and then the elections are going to, the US election is just going to dominate the global stage because it feels like there's so much at stake. I mean, we can talk about, um, is, you know, are we living in a Chinese century? What is the future? But truth be told, in Adelaide, Australia, where I grew up, they are doing protests for George Floyd in Adelaide, Australia. Uh, um, we are still in an American-centric reality. You know, the death of the unjust, horrific death of one man on a street in Minnesota shook the world out of America. And it changed the global conversation in many, many places. So I think the follow-through of that is going to be, will there be change in the White House that carries the current cultural momentum around justice into a political reality? And so it feels like this is going to be a very, very high-stake election. And honestly, I'm if, if Trump wins, I think the level of... Uh, not just protest, but rioting is is going to be just staggering, and it won't like be you that. You think like, it'll be a violent election one way? Oh or another. yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, <clears throat> I'm on 45th and 9th in Manhattan, yeah. so I'm two blocks from Times Square, and I was, I'm almost on a piece of paper in the center of a diagonal line between Trump Plaza and the Javits Center, where Hillary, when that election happened, and uh, my wife actually got stuck in the middle of the "Not My President" protest trying to get home. And she said there was sort of a, like an energy in the city she'd never encountered that was sort of terrifying, the level of angst. And um, I, I think we're definitely going to see that again, regardless of the outcome. I think this I was going to say, I think that could so go much the way. I mean, yeah. whether Trump wins or loses, I, I'm worried a little for America as to non-Americans, you living there and me holding a green card and spending yeah. until now a lot of my life in America. Uh, it's really interesting to see this happen. You said something about a terrorist attack and a weather event. I just want to follow that logical chain down. What did, what did you mean by that? I wasn't 100% oh, clear. No, I mean, you, you mean like you just like, make 2020 more complicated? That's right? exactly right. Okay, you, got can't, it, got you can't it. make yeah. any predictions. It's like something's going to impact whatever moment we're in. It just feels like that's the kind of... Yeah, one of having, my favorite you know? uh, little single panel cartoons I've seen this year was an asteroid and an alien hovering uh, on, in the orbit of Earth and the asteroid saying to the alien, oh, are you next? I thought I was next. Okay, you go ahead. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, that is 2020. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, and, and you're right. This is a really important conversation on racial justice. However, I want to go back to what you said about normalizing things because whether that's racial justice or whether that's COVID or whether that's the election, there was something really powerful in what you said about we were just so busy rushing back to normal that we missed the moment that could have been. And, and to nuance yeah. that, I've heard you, uh, Mark Sayers, to a certain extent, our mutual friend David Kinnaman, a little bit uh, Pete Gregg maybe, uh, all say that revival doesn't happen without repentance. And maybe yes. this was a moment that could have been very different, but we were so fixated on reopening the church, getting back to normal, yeah. um, getting back to what we know, the certain versus the uncertain, even if we had to force it. Did we miss a moment here? I'm pretty sure we missed the moment, mate. I'm pretty sure. I go back to, I, I read an article, uh, it was called The Coronavirus Experiment, and it's the it's the it's my one takeaway from COVID that I have. It's my one core practice I've stayed on, 
And it was written about a missionary named James O. Fraser, who was a missionary up uh, in the mountains of China. And uh, he basically did this experiment in total obscurity. He, he, there's a, a book written by his daughter, I think, called Mountain Rain, a very highly recommended, very yeah. inspiring account. He basically did an experiment. He, the weather was so bad. There was, uh, uh, I think it's the Lasso people that he was working with. He was stopped from seeing them in the winter because he just couldn't travel up to them. And so he said, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to minister, I'm going to minister in person to the people I can get to. And then I'm going to devote prayer to the people I can't reach. And at the end of the season, when we all gather again as a community, I'm going to see the spiritual growth of everybody. And he said he found that the people that he had interceded for experienced dramatically deeper growth than those he was personally doing ministry with. Deeper love for the Word of God, more holiness. They'd taken ground spiritually. And uh, so the thing was called the coronavirus experiment. And so I said, the one thing I'm going to do in the COVID season is increase the level of intercession in my life. And I'm just going to do an experiment. Will we emerge out of this a more godly, powerful church with authority, humility? And uh, so I've, I've just pushed into that. I've called our church to that sort of ad nauseum. Um, but I'm amazed at how many people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it just it just dissipated. It just sort of dissipated back to, I, I said, shame on us if 50 years from now when our grandchildren ask us, what, what did you do in the coronavirus? And all you can do is tell them the list out the shows you watched on Netflix, and that's what COVID amounted to you. And I think tragically a lot of, a lot of it happened. My favourite little uh, cartoon, this is going back a, a little while now, my favourite cartoon was uh, somebody saying next to President Trump, which is like, the virus is here, what do we do? And he said, release that Tiger documentary. <laughs> you Because know? it's just... Uh, it's collective attention spent. So one of the things that's so fascinating that I've observed in this, which is why I think we sort of missed a moment, before all the cable TV shows, when there was three or four television channels and everybody sort of observed cultural voices that helped us navigate through these moments, and then America fractured into screens and hundreds of channels and YouTube and all the rest of it, it feels like the whole world sort of rallied again around four or five voices and all of those voices were secular and scientific. None of them were religious. Mm. And so we were just, there was no talk. I mean, almost no talk about the end times or the judgment of God. You consider 2011 and Graham Lotz, how could God let this happen? Well, you've kicked him out of education. He's taken his hand of blessing off you. There was none of that in any media. And so I feel like the Christian's attention span because of the, the, the guiding voices, four or five guiding voices, um, were all about science and protection and normalization and fear. We got our eyes off God. And so the, with those voices saying the goal is reopen, everybody said, I guess that's the goal, reopen. Yeah. Christians, Christians also, uh, you know, once you know what a community fears, they're so easy to manipulate. And Christians um, fear being uncompassionate. Like we do not want to be uncompassionate. We do not want to be seen as selfish. So anytime someone says doing this is selfish, we're like, we'll stop then. And so I think, again, all of the tensions about meeting in person and, you know, opening the economy, like these were all distractions from Jesus who was like, I'm knocking at the door of the church asking you to let me back in. And I don't think we heard the knock, mate. 
I don't think we heard and opened. Or we, like, we opened the door and we were like, be right back, Jesus. Like, come in. I've got a few things I'm going to take care of. I'm not trying to dismiss what we had to navigate and wrestle through, but I do think we missed that moment. I would love you to replay it then. So if you could replay from the second week of March through to the summer of 2020, and in your mind, the church didn't miss the moment, we seized it. What would it have looked at? What would it have looked like for us to have seized the moment? What would have been different? What would we have done differently? I think we I think there would have been more there were some some good united prayer moments. Mm. But um they never got through to they never got sort of through to breakthrough level prayer. And I'm not trying to paint some sort of like Gnostic levels of spiritual authority and power, those sorts of things. But there's kind of a desperation, there's kind of a desperate prayer, like like one author called the power of crying out. That with your children, they have different cries. There's sort of like the whine, and then there's the they're looking for you and they're yelling. But there's the that like, oh gosh, they didn't breathe for three seconds because they're inhaling to burst their lungs. And that cry moves you, and you you would drop everything. You know, it's not a fake cry. We're, That's we're right. Coming. Yep. So I, I, I think we never got to that level of desperation. Mm. And so I would have, I would have stayed on um, deep internal examination about the church's failures and self-reliance. And so what are we being stripped of? All of the false things that we relied on. Therefore, in the stripping, let, let's turn our hearts back to God now. You know, I think sort of uh, what happened with Jehoshaphat, you know, he's surrounded by a force he can't control. He calls the people to fast and pray. They come and appear before the Lord, even infants in mother's arms. They appear before the Lord and they say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And, and, and so I think we didn't quite get there collectively. We got drawn, so we got drawn into debate instead of intercession. And so mm. I, I wish some Christian leaders had risen up and given spiritual direction to call the national church to repentance and introspection. So, you know, instead of the four or five medical verses and scientists that would have been Christian leaders giving advice and calling for united prayer. And and some of this did happen on a local level, but we never took that start into the next level, which I think would have been churches doing deep examination and repentance and, and maybe um, the Black Lives Matter stuff is uh, another jolt of God for the church to have a moment of examination and repentance. You know, so like, let me show you something you really got wrong. And then it's like, if, we, if we're not willing to walk into that, like what, what is left What's for left? God to yeah. get our attention? I'm scared at the thought. Huh. No, I'm just, I'm just thinking through even the prayer as I participated in my own prayer life and you know, watching the general prayer collective, so to speak. And I think you're right. It abated quickly. I also wonder, John, if a lot of our prayer was for protection and return to normalcy. You know, yeah, if no, you really look back exactly at that. Right. Yeah, that's exactly It was like, right. Lord, heal our land. It was, Lord, uh, make the virus go away. It was, Lord, let us reopen our buildings for Easter. Whoops, summer, whoops, as soon as possible. Yeah. And, you know, with that... that you know, what are you going to tell your grandkids one day about what you did in coronavirus? I think too often the answer is, I just went back to whatever was safe and normal and what I knew, and I tried to pick up where I left off. Yeah. yeah we, I wonder what, if that's the narrative. Yeah. 
Yeah, the fundamental flaw is we got our eyes off God. Yeah. That's the root of it. Like we, we wanted God to fix things and to respond to things, none of which are uh, necessarily wrong. You cry out when you have needs, but we got our eyes off God and we got onto solutions rather than letting God tell us what the solutions he wanted to be were. And uh, so, look, I'm not, I'm not hopeless about it. I'm just no, no. saying that really could have been something. That really could have been something. So for those who would still be in the place going, okay, at the moment I'm hearing this, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago. Second best time is today. Can there still be redemption or did this ship sail? Did we miss it? Like, can there still be, or you're like, nah, we missed our collective moment. I'm just I'm curious uh, what you think. I mean, uh, only God knows that. We're all, I mm. mean, God is so merciful. We're always invited in. I, I preached to our church on Sunday. You know, there's that verse in our, um, where God says to his people, I looked for a man to stand in the gap for the land but I, and to build up the wall, but I found none. And it's like God sadly says, and I sound all like super prophetic, which is not my like default tone. Um, he said, therefore, I will have to pour out on them my anger and pay to them according to what they've done. And I was like, God is almost like so sad that he just, he's not asking for everybody. He's just looking for a few. And he's like, I couldn't even find a few. And uh, so, yeah, we can always press in and we may not see some sort of national change of attention, but you could certainly see it in your church and in your region and certainly in the culture of your life. So, yeah, it's just turning back to the Lord with all of our hearts. A couple of things that really surprised me having not been through a year like this before in my life was I was surprised at the rapid advance of two things. Number one, denial. Just like this virus isn't real. It's a hoax. It's all, you know, everything from that kind of extreme view to, uh, oh, I'm sure we all have immunity somehow that this isn't really a big deal and I can go shopping and I don't have to wear a mask. And listen, I don't like masks either, but I get it. Like, you know, so there's that sort of denial thing. Like, I, I mean, I've been talking about the new normal and I can't tell you almost every single day on social media, someone's like, would you stop with this new normal thing? And I'm like, all right, all right. But the other thing is not in my backyard. So you being at the the epicenter of, of the disease outbreak in the early stages in America, heart of Manhattan, New York City, I couldn't believe the number of leaders who are like, oh, well, I'm in the Midwest, so that doesn't really impact me at all. And like all that distancing and like, I'm not, that's not, that's like another country over there and we're okay over here. And I'm just wondering for your take on that, like the denial and the not in my backyard or that's not my reality or that's not my context. And over here, we're just fine. Any thoughts on what that is? It's been really Uh, fascinating to see that is a broken and a fractured nation. That's what that is. So, you know, part of the, part of the disdain for... So we're just dealing at a time of totalizing narratives. You <laughs> cannot concede ground. You cannot concede ground in any way, shape, or form. So if you were to say, like, unless you say Trump... And so I'm in a super liberal city, New York, okay? It'd be very, very different if I was in maybe somewhere like Mississippi or whatever. But you say something like, you know, you say Trump. If you don't slur that with disdain, people will write you off. Mm. I've never seen 
Paul, you know, so I've been a pastor for 20 plus years, 15 in Manhattan, and I've never seen people leave the church over any issue, including sexuality or anything, more than I have over politics. Politics, the division of politics is so deep. I think part of that is because we're, uh, we're, we're truly secular now, which means there's no afterlife. So you have to cram an eternity's worth of justice or happiness into now. So for people, if you believe this is all there is, like the level of eternal angst projected into a moment is so high. And so things like patience and nuance are just not virtues, virtues that work with such a short reference point of life. And um, so, yeah, I, I think if, if Trump, and, and by the way, no one's trying to tell the truth. Everybody's trying to leverage power and maintain, and maintain political benefit. So you're not getting like filtered data. I mean, you know how easy it is to manipulate statistics. Yeah. And so if like Trump says something, you're like, liberals are like, well, I bet he spun that. If Trump says it's not that serious, everybody immediately says, well, it's not that serious then because it's just the liberals trying to attack Trump. It's just a cycle of attack. And I think that's, that, and, and selfishness as well, with a little bit of selfishness thrown in. So it's like, not my people, not my problem. You know what, New York, I hope the whole thing goes down, you know? Yeah. Like so, that was a very real thing that I heard. Not quite as yeah. that stark, but that that yeah. sentiment is, is that's just New York. And so you 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 hinted at something, and I just want to throw this out there because I saw this. Like when I was in seminary, I thought that there's a faction of the church that has become what I would call the secular church. It had basically become um, humanistic self help, devalued scripture, questioned the divinity yeah. of Jesus, questioned, and yeah. really became you know, the forerunner of some of the things that we see today. But I wonder, to a certain extent, do you think the evangelical church has become secularized as well? I wouldn't say it's become secular as, I mean, there's certainly elements of deconstruction really working in the church. I think it's become overly pragmatic. Mm. You know, so, so if secular doesn't mean, like using, again, Taylor's phrase, Christianity holds a non-privileged position in, in the cultural square. Um, I think the vast thing people are doing is they're just pragmatic. They're not God-centered, you know. So everything is like rushed, rushed to application. And um, I think that's become a large part of it. So, yeah, there definitely is um, the tension between secular humanism with religious garb, which is what you talked about in seminary, yeah. and, and the evangelical rush to application uh, what both of those things miss is God, yeah. you know, God, God himself. And uh, so I think part of that is the real problem. Well, it's been super helpful. And thanks for sharing personally and, and also the, you know, the deeper cultural narrative, which, which I think yeah. is so needed. And I'm so encouraged to see it in younger leaders like yourself, having lost a few giants in the church in the last decade, yeah. you know, yeah. Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, Recently, Ravi Zacharias, it's like, oh gosh, like we just need, we need thinkers and we need people with a heart for God. And I see that in you, John, just to affirm that. And so oh, thanks, appreciate yeah. that and value it. Um, let's talk about your church, because as of recording this late June, 2020, you are not yet publicly reopened for physical gatherings. 
Yeah. What what has this been? And probably actually the majority of churches in America aren't as much as the narrative seems like it is. The stats are showing that's not true. In my own yep. country in Canada, uh, the small churches are reopening, but we're going to stay closed for a while uh, yeah. for practical, well, practical reasons, maybe not theological, but like it's just, <laughs> it's going to be super awkward for a long time. Uh, yes. What has this done to Church of the City in New York? And how have, how are you navigating this season of being online only? It's it's so funny because at the start of COVID, I was like in total heartbreak lament. And, and part of it was we had been leaning in so heavily with like all the urgency I had to seeking God for spiritual awakening. It was actually a conversation with David Kinnaman that like really shook me. He basically said, bar a genuine move of God and radical discipleship, Statistically, we've lost the church. We can't get it back by human means. And that just sort of shook me to the core. And that was a part of like what made me do that, the, um, the stuff with my son, the, like the, the how to be a better dad stuff. And then the other part was like, we just got to press in for prayer. And, and I've talked about this concept quite a bit, but it's like in sports, the clock determines the play. So, you know, to, to try and I'm going to mangle this, I can tell already, but to use hockey as an example. <laughs> I, I don't you know, know sports very well, so we'll just, <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll, so. just, we'll just let people leave comments, okay, and write in. So go ahead, John. <laughs> so if, you know, if you're in the Stanley Cup and, um, which is probably, again, American hockey, gosh, I'm just failing. I failed, no, it is, I it is Canadians would hold that very dear and sacred. Okay, so in the first, in the first, um, moments of the game, you're urgent, but you're excited, but you're patient because you got time. But if you're down by a goal in the last minute, of you're going to pull seven. the goal. Yeah, yeah you're going to push. It's just the, the urgency, the clock determines the play. Like the final minutes, scoreboard, you got to go in. And I just had this sense, this is a moment for radically seeking God. And I was trying to think a little upstream. Right which is like, how do we get ahead of a divided church with the election this year? Let's just press it to seek God. And, mate, I'm telling you, we had so much momentum, spiritual momentum in our church, altars filled with people weeping, seeking God. I mean, like the it felt like the breath of God was on us. And then the next week it was like, welcome to, welcome to online worship, and we were not good at it. I felt disillusioned and disheartened by that in the first week. And now, several months in, so I was doing preaching five times on Sundays, five services, three locations. I mean, it was a very, very large workload. And now it's actually, I'm actually, I really like where we are. Um, I would be happier if we could um, get small groups going in homes, which we can't do and won't be able to do this summer. So, so what it's done to our church is I'm super proud of how our church has pivoted. We've had, you know, our giving has not gone down. In fact, it's gone up. People have been very, very generous. Um, we did a church survey. 30% of our church left New York. Like, left Yeah, the that city. is a thing, right? I had that yep, on my yep. question list, deurbanization. But yeah, so 30% but I, of your church just went elsewhere. Yeah, and but the, the, almost all of them plan to come back when, when possible out of like a, not just work but a sense of commitment to the city. You know, we're like, this is the greatest opportunity in our lifetime for two things, to buy real estate, and it's the greatest opportunity to repair the reputation of the church by being in the middle of brokenness. This is our Nehemiah moment. 
So our church has really bought into that vision, but it's been very, it's been very awkward. Our team's done a great job. Our, our groups have done very, very well. We've offered courses that have been very well attended. We found a sustainable rhythm for online worship, and we will never not have online again. Online is a part of us. The, so How the, much the, was that a part of your, like, a strategy prior to COVID? Oh, absolutely zero. He had <laughs> right. no strategy. You were totally in-person, so, organic, like. Yeah, and we would film the gatherings and put them online. We've, we have, like, a, um, like, our podcast is probably 10x our attendance on a Sunday. So we have a good podcast listenership. I, I have a, a leadership coach who was pushing me saying, your church is bigger than just who's showing up on Sunday. There's people who were responding to your sort of combination of like cultural engagement, charismatic bent with sort of biblical thoughtfulness. And he said, you've got to figure out how to serve these people. And so we, we had that floating around in our head. But the other factor that's made us take this really seriously is like we have people that are New York exiles. They've lost their jobs. They can't come back. They won't be back, but they feel like they're a part of us. And so how do we love them and serve them? So I'll be honest with you, I did possess a little bit of a um, uh, online consumer mentality. Like people online, it's just consumers. They go to multiple churches. And I'm not saying that's not there. That's just not my lens anymore. It's an unhelpful lens. Like you can even control that. Right. Like you can even control that. The only way to control it is to password protect your site and make people who come live access it. And to me, it's like, that's pedantic. We're trying to spread the gospel. So that's basically, yeah, we, we pivoted. I'm pretty happy with how it's gone. I'm just genuinely pastorally thrilled with our people's hearts. You know, there's, there's a scene in, um, in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul, um, there's a riot in the city of Ephesus, and the whole city is chanting for two hours, long live Artemis of the Ephesians. Yeah. And it says they had to physically restrain the Apostle Paul from going in there to preach to them. And I have this talk for our church called Let Me In There. What kind of belief do you have to have in the gospel that you're like, this is my, sh- I've got them all in one place. Let me in there. I believe the gospel can shake this city. And so I said, I want to be a let me in there disciple. And I want to have a let me in there church. And I'm so pleased that most people's efforts has been like, let me in to the brokenness of New York to rebuild whatever it looks like after that. So the core is solid. There's been a, a breathtaking emphasis on prayer that we actually had built a very, very strong prayer ministry before this. It transitioned online, and that's the best thing that's ever happened to us. How have you done that? How have you brought prayer online? Just Zoom prayer meetings, man. <laughs> it's Pretty as simple. simple as that. Yeah, yeah. so we would... I mean, I, I, I don't have the statistics because um, the person running it is out on paternity leave right now. But, see, so yeah, so our church had um, three, four hours of prayer a day in a prayer room happening in person in a prayer room in the middle of New York City. And um, so all we had to do was click a button, and now people are joining us from around the world. So I would say there's some elements going online that have been disproportionately accelerated. Some elements I'm I'm torn about. Some elements that have haven't been as good, um, but overall it nets out to it's been a very positive experience for us, and we will push through online. What are you What are you torn about? Oh, I think I mean, 
I, I believe there is something powerful about um, being in the room with other, like an embodied faith, you know, like taking the sacraments together, being able to lay your hands on someone and pray for them. There's reasons the Bible has small little belonging clues, like greet one another with a holy kiss. And, you know, in Roman society, those very, very small things, normally not done between classes, these were like little symbols that said, this is a new humanity. And I think there's ways you only get that live. Um, I also I also miss preaching um, uh, to, a, to an audience, but not through a camera. I, I love that the power of the gathered people of God for worship. So, but again, it's a false dichotomy to say it has to be either or. That that's what I've lost. I've lost the false dichotomy. Hmm. Uh, you you wrote an art, you wrote an, uh, a comment in one of your articles that I, I had our whole team talk through, which was um, saying does online count is like saying to somebody saying to a mall does Amazon count? Yeah, you know, and I was like. That's the truth, man. That's the truth. This is a very, God's put this here to extend the reach of the gospel. And um, as long as personally as leaders, we are embodying what we're preaching, like we are literally living into the way of Jesus so that when people go clo- get close, they say, this, this is a real life. That, that to me is the main thing. So live deeply and share broadly. That's the, that's the vision. Well, it's really interesting too, because someone like you, uh, you know, to a certain extent, like myself or some other guests like John Mark Comer or so on, or even even uh, Mark Sayers, we all have, we have all experienced what I might call disproportionate influence. In other words, you know, my church isn't the biggest in the country or the biggest in the world, but God's given me a platform for whatever reason that reaches millions of people. And I don't really understand why you look at, you know, you have global impact through your books and and so on, and, and through the ministry that you've done over the years, and so do some of the others, you know, that we've mentioned, or Anne Graham Lotz, for example, or, uh, you know, there are so many Annie F. Downs who preaches in Nashville. Yeah. Just this disproportionate impact. And that happens because of the internet. We don't own TV networks. We don't own radio yeah. stations. It's yeah. happened because of online and viral. And I don't know why the church shouldn't benefit from that. Like, I just don't know why the gospel can't can't travel uh, along those same lines. One of the questions I've gotten a lot, which is, I'll just pose it to you. I don't know that there's an easy answer, um, but I get this every week or so online. Somebody says, what about the theology of all this? Because you're right. I've been the proponent of pay attention online. I'm banging that drum every day, whether people are listening or not. And I get a lot of pushback to it, but people are like, what about the theology of all that? And I'm like, yeah, sometimes the theology just has to catch up. Any thoughts on like, what is the, and I'm not sure it's fundamentally different, but like any thoughts on the theology that would accompany a broader online presence for the church in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you would have to pass it out. I mean, the ch- I believe that the church should be an embodied local community under the rule of uh, spiritual authority, church elders, receiving the sacraments on the regular. I mean, that's, that's what I think a local church is. Um, so I'm not advocating getting rid of that at all. Um, yeah. um, but, you know, so then is there, I mean, so, so I'm thinking of a few verses just sort of off the top of my head. Um, 1 Thessalonians, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. The word of the Lord rang out from you. In the Greek, literally means to trumpet, to herald. 
And so there was, there was something happening with the Thessalonians that the whole region heard about. Um, that's, that's, that's interesting to me. So, uh, you know, when Paul says, I have no, it's, your love is known amongst all the churches. I have no need to add anything to it. So what a church carries and embodies can have a reputation that is known around and spills around. I th- so, yeah, and then you think about like you get out of the context of church and then you talk about ministry or mission or the preaching of the word or the spreading of the gospel. It's always crossing bar- barriers. Um, in an unauthorized way, some Greek-speaking followers of Jesus went to the city of Antioch. They crossed the boundaries without apostolic authority. And the, the apostles had to come and they sent Barnabas to come and see. And it says, he, when he saw the grace of God, he saw it. And uh, yes, yeah, so the, the gospel is always bigger than the church. It's always crossing boundaries. And as Paul said, the word of God is not chained. It's not chained. You can't chain it up. So there will always, there should, there will be, there should always be an overflow impact of the message of the gospel and biblical teaching to help other people. When Paul says, uh, "Once you've read this, send this to the other churches," I have them read that too. So there's a desire for for shared ministry and shared authority. Uh, what so? What are people resisting? That's the question. It's like, why do people push back on it? Yeah, it doesn't even seem that controversial. Well, I think there's probably a few things they're resisting: um, consumer Christianity. So they're worried that by taking in extra online content, people will not participate fully in the life of their local church. There's probably some legitimacy to that. But that's not just local church. That's all the information they're taking mm-hmm. in that weakens their, weakens their involvement. Um, they're probably worried about the concept of celebrity pastors. You know, um, sometimes that can be insecurity or jealousy. God, I'm better than him, why not me? And which makes you then impugn people's motives. He must be a narcissist if he can push himself that far out. Hmm. And um, and then again, I think sometimes people are worried that some of the preachers get popular do seem sort of like they don't have a profoundly deep theology. Yeah. And um, so like it's it's interesting. Someone like say, John MacArthur, Grace to You, or Charles Stanley. I'm thinking of the older guys that have been pushing out tape ministries. Chuck Colson. I mean, these not, not Colson, Swindoll. Yeah, Chuck Swindoll. These guys, are, yeah, these guys have been sending cassette tapes in the mail. There's always been people who've had larger ministries out of their local church. I think it is the, it is the celebrity theological thing that people are resisting right now. That's probably my take. No, I think that's fair. And I would say under some of the questions, and I don't really know because these aren't long dialogues, but I think theology is an attempt to understand, but it can also be an attempt to control, right? It can also be an attempt to, well, unless you fit my super hyper narrow definition of what is approved and what is not approved, then uh, it can't really work. And I think there's a certain element, like when you talk about even in the book of Acts, you know, I just finished reading Acts chapter 10 and there's a sense in which Peter's world is turned upside down. He gets this vision yeah. of the ministry actually going to the Gentiles, which would have been almost complete unfaithfulness to him from his worldview. Yeah. And then he sees, you know, Gentiles worshiping God and they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, well, I guess I can't really stand in the way of this, can I? And God's already shown me. And there's a certain sense in which I think we're moving into that new era where, and and I, I would just encourage leaders who are listening to reflect on, I know this has been a great, rich conversation so far, and there's much to go. 
but that that drive to go back to normal and to normalize or to revive what was as opposed to embrace the mystery of what could be or what is, because I think there's a lot of fertile ground there. Any final thoughts on that? And then I want to talk about New York and a bunch of other stuff. Oh, I mean, gosh, there's, there's so many things that, yeah. that should be unpacked at some point about that. Um, but I think that we've said it. We've said we said, we said We'll probably we said get, get, get in trouble enough for what's already been said. Talk about New York. Yeah, I think we've managed to alienate everybody, which is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about New York and rebuilding New York. You're saying that this city will be scarred for many years. Tim Keller, who I had on the show a few months ago, talked about the rebuilding of New York after 9-11 and just how devastating an event that was for the city, not only for the nation, but particularly for the city. COVID, yeah. a similar mark on the city. T- talk to me about that. I wasn't there for 9-11. That's actually how I, I came to love New York. I came up to pray for the city after 9-11. And, uh, you know, everybody who knows me knows my story. Um, I ended up just going for a walk through Times Square and then staying walking around our neighbourhood all night in prayer, seized with a complete vision like, dear God of the universe, please let me live in New York, please. So I... I so I wasn't there for that, but that's how I got there. I was there for 2008. I remember walking through Times Square and seeing people walking out of the Lehman Brothers building um, with boxes when everyone was getting fired and the whole economy was melting down. So I've got some thoughts on that. I was there for Hurricane Sandy when the city was underwater and absolutely devastated. That was uh, very, very scary. Um, this is different than all of that. And I bet Keller would say this is different. There's a, there's a. Yeah, I haven't had talked to him since. Talked to yeah, him just those, before. Those were what felt like one-off events that had an end date that you could say we're done with it now. Let us rebuild together. This thing you can't control like that. You can't get around it. So the permanent sense of fear is much higher. Um, I, it is hard to articulate, and I, I think. Because we, so we've lived in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen for the last six years, which is basically Midtown West, right off Times Square. And so, I, I mean, I, like I said, I, I'm in the, like one of the most po- population dense miles on planet Earth on any given day. So I felt it particularly hard. And to, to see hundreds of thousands of people in Times Square and then to get up and walk through Times Square and pray and be the only, I do not exaggerate, the only person in Times Square was so disillusioning. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things. So I, I actually was just on a call with a Harvard professor uh, who, who wrote about pandemics and their impact on cities or whatever. So I just had two hours of pure genius, one of the world experts on how that works. And, and so I'll give you some of the things that he said. So he did like metadata research with all of his resources. He said he thinks 40% of the jobs that converted to basically Zoom jobs will remain that way. 40% of jobs will stay what he called telecommuting jobs. So there definitely will be a lot of people who say, I'll come to New York once a month or one day a week, but I'm not coming in every day. Some people are saying skyscrapers are a thing of the past. The yeah. days, of, like the New yeah. York Times, has been remote, like Times Square. The New York Times has been remote for four months. It's crazy. That's so funny because out of my living room window, I look at the New York Times building, 
And uh, I, I, it's fascinating because like, I, I didn't know that, but I, I always, always, um, that's like one, like the orientation point of my mornings is, is looking at that. So yeah, will there be, will, and many companies, like many of the large financial firms have said, I don't think we'll ever be back at full capacity. One of the things he said that's interesting is that the centers of sort of power and energy and prestige will bounce back because property values are too high. He said, but it's some, somewhere like some town in, in Ohio, for example, you're not going to abandon a skyscraper in New York City. Like rents could drop 25% and people will still feel them. People are not going to walk away from property in New York. So there's not going to be like homeless people moving in or whatever he said, but there's going to be other cities that don't have their reputation. Will it we, we'll be like that. So he says he thinks New York's going to fare better uh, than in, in that de-urbanization movement. Um, but much of what we love will will not come back soon. Concerts are the last thing that will come back. Broadway, um, clubs, packed in uh, clubs will not come back. So what, what people are going to lose, and this is what they're going to lose, culture, access to culture, uh, cultural artifacts and events. And that because it's your job, maybe you may be able to do that anywhere, but you lose access to culture and they're going to lose access to social capital. And if you were to ask people why are you in New York, a lot of it is because of like the relational scene and energy and the culture I get to participate in. And that stuff's not going to be coming back. So there's going to be some sadness. Many people say it's going to get younger and cheaper. And, and I, I hope it gets cheaper. Um, but I will say this. It's the greatest opportunity for followers of Jesus in our lifetime. If you're here. If you're under the sound of my voice, come and help us in New York. No, it's like, you know, I mean, Christians run in when everyone runs out. That's our posture in many ways. And I, I believe New York will come back. And um, so I just like, so people say to me, what's the future of New York? And I'm like, I don't know, but I give you my word. God willing, you will find me up early walking the streets, praying, loving, serving, trying to shape its future. The only thing I have for the future is a commitment to rebuild the city and to see the church thrive. So I can't, I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what the changes are. I just know our people are going to be in the middle of it, trying to pour out their lives to serve it. Now, we don't have to be physically proximate. And I've got friends who have said, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, he goes like, I think we're done with New York, man. We're virtual. We're purely virtual. And I was like, whoa, I feel like I sort of, I mean, famous last words, I feel like I sort of have a, a land covenant with New York. You know, I love it. I've done a deep reevaluation, which is like, do I need to be here? Um, am I still cold here? If ever there's an excuse to leave New York, it is now. It's right now. But I'm yeah. like, there's nowhere else I want to be, nothing else I want to do, so I'm just going to dig in and just grind it out. And I was going to say one thing. Getting back to, um, I just taught this t t at our church on Sunday. Um, Reese Howes, uh, intercessor, the guy from Wales, amazing life and legacy. He, he was talking about how intercession works, and he talks about identity, agony, and authority. And he's like, you've got to make a conscious choice of who you identify with. There can be surface identification, there can be selfish identification, but then there's sacrificial identification, which is like, your people are now my people. That leads you then to experience the agony 
And that ultimately, when people sense that he's one of us and he's paid the price, they'll listen. You've got authority to speak into it. And um, I've made a conscious decision to identify with the city and I felt the pains of it in many, many very, very real ways, raising my kids there all the way through school. And, uh, but, and now I'm like, I want to be here to help rebuild on the other side of this and um, that's going to lay the foundation for whatever God does in the next 20 years. So I'm not thinking, to be honest with you, where's our church going to be in two years? I'm like, how are kids who are two years old right now, what will they inherit because of our faithfulness in this season? Mm. And how do, we, how do we pass that on to them, build them something so they don't experience the pain of what we have um, and they have a foundation for the gospel to thrive into the future? You have a lot of young leaders uh, listening to this podcast right now. Was that a half serious invitation to like, man, if you ever thought about going to New York, come on in, we need you? It's, 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 even when New York's cheap, it's cripplingly expensive, you know, but it is a serious invitation. I mean, you, people will be able to get apartments that were prohibitive before and, um, New York is such a special place and it's got such a dense history on every block. I mean, I walk around my neighborhood. I, I go to get coffee and I pass the church uh, where Walter Rushenbush pastored. And on the corner in German, it says Christ the Cornerstone. The whole social gospel was built there. I turn the corner and there's A.B. Simpson's uh, a gospel tabernacle uh, where he launched the Christian Missionary Alliance in the middle of Times Square. Everywhere I look, I'm reminded of something profound. And my heart is like, Let's give another generation these stories, this prayer room, that prayer room. That was on 45th Street right there. These guys did their gatherings in this building. Like, let's, we love the legacy. Let's build it for another generation. So I, it is a half serious invitation. One of the things that really inspires me is, you know, with increased mobility, for the most part, you know, we're in an exceptional year. I see so many young leaders relocating all the time yeah. to like join yeah. a mission. So that's what I wanted to underscore. Um, wow. <laughs> I wanted to ask you this question and it hasn't really come up in the context, but you know, when you look at your viewpoint and I think this is an increasing issue in America and Canada and in the Western world, uh, you would hold views on, um, you know, everything from one way to Jesus to sexuality to other things that would be very, very deeply countercultural to the ethos of New York City or even America. How do you advance the gospel when the message is so countercultural? Well, here's what I know doesn't advance the gospel. Watering the gospel down. Mm. It's like step one, don't water it down. Um, so I, I believe there is power in the truth. And then when preached prayerfully and humbly, God does the work through it. Mm. So I'm trying to be faithful to the great tradition I've inherited, not accommodate to the spirit of the age. So how do you do it? I mean, there's, there's a concept. I, I read this uh, amazing book on uh, the power of persuasion and communication. And, and this is something I've been talking about a lot. Uh, there's a concept called the sacred core. And every community possesses a non-negotiable at the center of it where until it's acknowledged, um, you, will, you will not get any openness to respond. You have to acknowledge the sacred core of a community. 
So um, for the for the gay community, many gay people think, you know what Christians want? They want to pray the gay away. They want gay people to become straight. And so if if you can acknowledge, I know that there's pain in your heart because you feel like in order for God to love and accept you, you have to become heterosexual. And I just want to say today, that's not true. The gospel is not a gospel of heterosexuality. Gay people must become straight. The gospel is the gospel of the lordship of Jesus. It has all sorts of implications. And uh, but I want to I want to acknowledge what it's like to grow up and to think, oh gosh, I feel about the same sex the way that my friends feel about the opposite sex, and then go to bed every night hoping when you pray to wake up and it be gone, and then it not be gone, and then to be terrified to tell your youth pastor, and then to look at gay porn, and then feel like you're in an even deeper cycle, and then you know, like I, I just can't imagine all of that, and then to show up in church. And hear that your pastor is going to be speaking on Jesus in the gay community. Gosh, you must carry so much like anxiety and fear of being dismissed and judged. And so that's how I opened my talk on Jesus in the gay community. I went, and so, so my, I, I have several gay friends and they came up to me and said, I totally disagreed with your talk. But I felt like you understood what I'd been through. And so I was willing to listen. And you did challenge me on a few points I hadn't thought through. Now, I disagree. But thank you for acknowledging you understand mm. my journey. So again, that's not um, th- that's that's around persuasion. So in this book, they basically said there's three kinds of of uh, conversation: there's prophetic, there's pastoral, and there's persuasion. And we've the church has predominantly, particularly on moral issues, had the prophetic tone, personally the pastoral, but we haven't even had persuasion in our framework. And I think that in order for the church to get a larger hearing, we have to start with persuasion, then the pastoral, and end with the prophetic, particularly around morality and issues of justice. You probably need to start with the prophetic, and we're seeing that now, but particularly on on issues of sexuality and other controversial issues, we need to to say, how do I persuade? And Paul did this in uh, Acts 17. Hmm. He starts very, very far away from repent, you're wrong. He starts with, hey, you guys are spiritual. I, yeah, I, I, I see this. That. I see this in you. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's a hunger in you that's leading you to something. It's, it's what Keller calls our subversive fulfillment. You come up within their story and you give it a surprise alternative ending. And so I try and do that a lot in my, in a lot of my preaching. So don't water it down. Understand the sacred core and then preach in a humble, loving tone. Hmm. And, and so one other thing I would say, when I first moved to New York, um, I was doing a tour of um, Christian leaders just saying, what advice do you have for me? I'm a new pastor. And one guy, uh, Stan Oaks, said to me as a college professor, I said, give me, give me what I need to know about pastoring in New York. And he said this. It was an amazing meeting. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That was Jesus. And that was the meeting. <laughs> and like, like, I was like, okay, man, I got it. So... You've got to break the fear of being liked. They crucified Jesus. They crucified him. If your desire is to be liked, forget it. Forget it. There's no way you can present the truth, no matter how skillful you are, in a way that it does not spark riots and create controversy. That's what it's done all over the world through history. Don't be an idiot about it. Don't be unsensitive, but you've got to break that fear of being liked. Good word. John, you got a brand new book. Uh, I admire your writing discipline and schedule. You you pump them out with, and and they're deep. I mean, they're not like, oh yeah, here's a 
sermon that I had a ghostwriter turn into a book. Um, but it's called The Beautiful Resistance. And mm-hmm. in it, uh, I'd love to know, let's just start with this. What's it about? Why did you write it? And then I've got one or two specific questions for you as we wrap up. Yeah, I, I was reading, uh, um, I was reading, so, so why did I write it? I wrote it because I was heartbroken at the ways the culture was winning the war of discipleship over the church. Mm. People were being formed into the image of the world with, to a larger extent than Christians were being formed into the image of Jesus. And that was like breaking my heart pastorally. Several things happened in my congregation that I was like, I felt like as Paul says, I was in the, the pains of childbirth, like Jesus has got to be formed. So I'm reading a biography of Bonhoeffer by Charles Marsh I think, called Strange Glory, and he has this scene in Bonhoeffer's life where um, Bonhoeffer's running Finkenwald, his seminary, and, you know, Bonhoeffer's like in it, super intense, and his friend is concerned that it's too intense. There's what he calls so much spiritualism, and he basically comes to visit Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer takes him on a, a, a rowing trip across uh, a river to where Hitler is training troops. He stands on the banks of the river and points to where Hitler's training troops, talks about his seminary, where he wrote Life Together and Cost of Discipleship. And he, and he basically said, to summarise the conversation, this, what we're doing at the seminary, has to be stronger than that, what Hitler's doing, forming his army. We have to raise up a, a generation of Christians whose formation is stronger than that of the Third Reich. And then they row back. And I was like, gosh, that's the moment. It's a prophetic image. Here's what he's up against, and here's what he's working on, a little ragtag group of disciples. So who won? The seminary was shut down. Half the leaders signed allegiance to Hitler. A bunch of them were arrested. Fast forward 70 years. Bonhoeffer's a hero. His books have changed the lives and inspired millions. The German church is deeply repentant. Uh, Germany's paid billions in uh, reparations to Israel. There's shame in the culture about what, what they went through. A deep His shame, having spent off. time in Germany, a deep shame. Yeah. Yeah. So it worked. His formation was stronger. So it's about potency, not size. It's about mm-hmm. potency. Yeah. So I was so seized by that. It made me start asking the questions, what are the Christian practices that actually change people, that actually do the job of formation? And so I, I tried to like pick out some of the most neglected and potent ones and preach on these. So, so when I was putting the book together and I had a few friends read it, they were like, the concept's really clear, but the practices are like kind of disjointed. It doesn't flow beautifully like um, celebration of discipline where there's three kinds of disciplines in quadrants. And uh, I was like, yeah, because I try to pick the potent ones we're not good at where we're failing. So I was what are some to, of those uh, disciplines, John? Um, so fasting, always a popular one. I hate fasting. It's probably the most trans, uh, transformative discipline in my life. Um, what it means to honor people in a culture of content. So like, what is the practice of honor? Uh, and, ha- and how is there uh, potency in that? Um, what it means to agape love someone in a culture of, in cancel culture. Like, what does it really uh, mean to live in that? Um, what does it mean to celebrate in the midst of cynicism? Like, why is, why is defiant joy something that uh, Christians have to fight for. Uh, hospitality, like how do we create portals of belonging in a culture where everybody is turning everyone into the other and pushing them away out of fear? And uh, I feel like all of those things, when done, catalyze something in the spirit 
that shakes us and wakes us with a confrontation that has the power to produce change. So there's a few others in there, but... Oh, that's, uh, I, I, like I told you, I haven't got my hands on it, but I can't wait until I do. I would love to ask you about rest. So leaders, when they hear this, are somewhere, I don't know exactly when it's going to air, in the summer of 2020, or perhaps much later, they're listening to it a year or two down the road. People are tired like I've never seen, like just kind of exhausted, fatigued. It's uh, Levi Lusco was on the show and he said, it's like we finished running the race and we thought, oh, great. And then someone handed us a bicycle and we realized, oh, this is a triathlon. Oh, and by the way, there's a swim afterwards. Uh, yeah. you've, you've thought an awful lot about spiritual formation, about rest, about rhythms that renew us for the long haul. And you're now a COVID survivor. So you got that, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. What would you say to leaders who are just really tired and they're like, John, I don't, I don't know that I can do this much longer. What would you say to them? Unless you do something different, you won't. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the truth. You know, one thing, I don't know if Keller said this to you. I don't know where I heard it. I just heard it from Keller. Um, he was talking about his response after 9-11 and he said uh, a bunch of his staff and team jumped in and just grounded out in a heroic response. That was on and the eight, show. We'll link yeah, to it in yeah, the show yeah. notes. Yeah. yeah, and 18 months later or whatever, like a ton of those people were gone. Yeah. Like they just burned out. And what I would what I would say is like you've, you've got to, you've so, so here's what I would say. What we're dealing with is a replenishment problem right now. And because yes. we've experienced disproportionate exhaustion, we're not going to be able to just use our regular rhythms of rest to acknowledge it. You're going to have to have disproportionate replenishment things. And they're often, they often feel trivial in the midst of so much crisis. And you can often feel guilty doing them. So you've got to, you know, I mean, it's all the classic like drains and gains, but they feel like a luxury, which is like, how can I, how can I read poetry and go for a two hour walk when people in my congregation are dying? And it's like, you will be dying if you just let adrenaline burn your life out. So you've got to find those life-giving practices and you have to level them up. So you've got to reevaluate your foundational ones that sustain you in normal ministry. And then you've got to match new ones um, for this current season of ministry. And if you don't do that, you're going to be toast. So I've, I've, I, it's, it's so interesting. People have said like, isn't, you know, COVID's a forced Sabbath. I'm like, I've never since Easter, something happened at Easter where I've never worked so hard in my life since Easter. I mean, I am just pulling monster hours and I'm also pulling monster rest. And I just realized I've, I've taken real criticism. I've taken real criticism from people. And my response is, I understand that I've been here 15 years and I'm genuinely asking God for grace to put another 25 in. And so you can, what you can count on is my faithfulness and my dependence. And I'm giving you all I can, trust me. And um, so that's why I've, I've definitely practiced the Sabbath. I've had very intentional um, new rhythms in the mornings and the evenings. To be honest with you, the number one um, thing I've experienced is, is mental exhaustion. Yeah. It's funny because my physical rhythms are good right now. Like I'm getting enough sleep. I'm taking time yeah. off. But I was saying yeah. to my team this week, like I'm just mentally tired. I feel like I'm contented out 
And I have all these ideas. It's not like I'm out of ideas. It's just like the energy to produce them is, is lower. And I've been thinking, you know, it's not, it's not just time off. Time off's really important. Like take your summer break, whatever you need to do. But it's really about time on and how we spend our time on. And if this season is unprecedented, we probably need some unprecedented rhythms and renewals that are going to take us. What have been a few things that have kept you, you know, from burning out or in the game so far? As you say, after Easter, having worked harder than you ever have. Like what? Yeah, I mean, I mean filling the heart with beauty. That's, that's been something that's huge. Uh, I, I love poetry. Um, looking at um, tons of uh, nature photography, um, listening to jazz music on vinyl with headphones on, leaning back in a chair. You know, like I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember the world is not just a broken crisis, that there is grace and beauty in the midst of it too. And, um, you know, uh, Satan, um, Jesus says to Peter, Satan, Satan is coming after you. He's asked to sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And that word, that word eclipse or to eclipse in the Greek means Satan's asking to put something in front of you that blocks me out to eclipse. Eclipse. Yeah, my yeah, presence. yeah. Yes, to eclipse my presence. So I've just every day pushed the block back. Where is God? Look at my, you know, people are dying. Um, the world is broken. We're going to enter into like the greatest crisis of our generation. And then I just poke through the clouds and say, the Lord is good. Look at this. Mm. You know, so that like beauty is a form of resistance against the brokenness of the world. We've got to fill our hearts. The other thing I would say that's like, it seems very, very small. I, I, I talked about this in my last book and it's actually from Neil Postman, but he talks about liars, what he calls the low low information to action ratio. And my definition is we know everything about that, which we can do nothing about and almost nothing about that, which we can do everything about. Yes. And so you know about the Wuhan virus. I mean, had you heard of Wuhan, China? Maybe you had. I no, hadn't. I'd never heard of it. No. Yeah, yeah. So I can tell you about, you know, COVID rates in Wuhan. I can tell you about Korean cell phone tracking. I can tell you about the global economy. I can tell you about how, you know, that the British Prime Minister is doing, but, but do I know my act, actual neighbors' names? So I'm putting, I'm giving my attention to that which I actually have no agency in, and so I've tried to take action where I have agency. So it is like paying attention to who's around me because that's how you actually repair the world. Very few people will be given the cultural influence and power to actually shape history, but all of us have unlimited agency to shape the world around us. And so I've tried to do tangible practices of care and love for my neighbors in ways that actually extend God's kingdom in a tangible way. And that's that's honestly kept me sane. Mm. It's kept me sane. So I, I think there's great value in asking what beautiful and kind restorative thing can I do for someone around me? You know, what I'm about to say, I don't know if this is uh, controversial or not, and it's, and, um, but people at people, are talking about reparations, like for the African American community, and I'm 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 absolutely in favor of reparations. Meaning, we need a national moment of recognition and repentance, and some sort of restoration. I don't. There's many smart people who've thought it out, but here's what I've tried to do. Like, here's what I can do. If there's such a thing as microaggression, is it possible in a non-paternalistic way to do micro reparations? 
Like is in my daily life, can I steward the privilege I have on behalf of others? And I try and do it in invisible ways so that I, it can't even be traced back to me. But I try and do small acts of kindness and love that address the brokenness of my world that I personally witness. And um, Can you give me an example? I, I mean, know you're doing these quietly, but just... Well, I mean, not without losing my rewards in heaven, sending people money anonymously, you know, buying buying meals for people who can't pay you back and they don't know, um, encouragement, um, giving of gifts, uh, talking to people, you know, the gift of time, the gift of time. One of the greatest encounters, one of the greatest encounters I had, um, I was in New York um, praying early in the morning. And I've always been sort of an early morning person. And when I get up in the morning and walk around New York, there's two people who are up, investment bankers and homeless people. That's like who's walking around. And I was just saying, Jesus, I was saying, Jesus, show me where you are in this city. And uh, this, this homeless woman came up to me and she said, hey, do you have any money? And I said, look, I actually don't have any money. And she said, would you be willing to just talk to me then? And I'm telling you, manifest presence of God. And he was like, I'm here. And so I just had this amazing conversation about this woman's life. And at the end of it, she said this to me, thank you for being so kind to me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the kingdom of heaven. What that, like, I can't, I can't fix everything. I can't even fix her financial situation. But she felt, she felt heard and loved and seen. And I'm like, if I just have regular encounters like that where I'm humanizing things and I'm honoring things in person, I don't know the ripple effects that will do. And again, small things with great love, Mother Teresa, but actually focusing on that as a way of responding to the meta-global crisis. It's a very affirming it's been very word. important. Yeah. That's a very yeah. affirming word. You know, it's interesting, John, having been grounded now for three and a half, four months as we record this. Um, you know, you think, oh, we're really impacting the world. You're flying from city to city, speaking to leaders and, you know, participating in events and that kind of thing. But somehow I feel like I see the kingdom of God even a little bit closer, watching the birds in my backyard, talking to my neighbors, connecting with my parents every day, and just being a little slower and more present for the people I actually know in real life. It's been, it's been, I don't want to renormalize my life, <laughs> back to where it was before. And I loved it. And it was an incredible privilege, but this is somehow better. And uh, yeah, totally trying to pay attention to that. John, this could go on five more hours. It's such a joy as always. Um, People want to connect with you. Tell us about social. Obviously they can find the book, Beautiful Resistance, everywhere books are sold, but where can they find you online? Uh, Just uh, our church's website is church.nyc. Um, and I'm John Tyson on Instagram and Instagram and Twitter. It's yeah, just J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N. Yeah. Well, it won't be the last time, John. What a gift. Thank you, my friend. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, man. I, I said this last time. You ask questions that get that they they get under the surface and get to the real issues. So I always really, really enjoy these conversations and I'm very grateful to be on the show. Likewise, and thanks for being willing to turn on the microphone for this one. Thank you. Yeah, no worries, Matt. 
Well, that was a good drink from a clear stream of water. (laughs) And if you enjoyed that, you may want to check out the show notes, including transcripts. And we got a link to everything we talk about. So you can find that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 363. For those of you who like to listen to the end, we do a what I'm thinking about segment. And what I'm thinking about right now is what are the characteristics of churches that will be in decline five years from now? So what are the decisions that are being made right now by leaders that are going to move them into a place where they're like, oh, I wish we could get 2020 back because by 2025, they're in decline. And I think those rules have changed. So I'm going to talk about that in just a minute as we wrap up. I do want to let you know what's next on the podcast. And uh, well, who have we got next? We've got like, we mix it up around here. We've got Nick Walenda. And one of the things I really enjoy doing is cross-disciplinary learning. So he is actually a tightrope walker. You may know him. He's had numerous national TV specials. He's uh, the first man to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He's done wire walking across Times Square, the Grand Canyon, and more. And I think we learn a lot when we run into people who don't do what we do. And I learned a ton from Nick Walenda. Here's an excerpt. The reality is that fear is real. And the only way to get over that fear is to push yourself through it, step out of your comfort zone and do it. And after you do it, as you do it more and more, you go, okay, well, this isn't so bad. This is actually good. And you realize a lot of times I think our greatest callings are behind those, those closed doors, uh, you know, that we need to, that we need to walk through. So, um, I just, I, more than anything, encourage people to be bold and don't listen to negativity. The training stuff alone on like how you train to do wire walking, I, I just think is incredible. I, I will never forget that illustration. So that's next time on the podcast. And now it's time for what I am thinking about. And I am thinking about the new characteristics of churches that will be in decline five years from now. The segment is brought to you by the Leaders in Living Room podcast. So you can learn more uh, just by subscribing. So I don't know what you're listening to this on. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, my favorite app. Just look up Leaders in Living Rooms. Sean Morgan is the host. That's S-E-A-N, Sean Morgan. Uh, You can find him there. And um, particularly check out the Brad Lominick episode. That one's really interesting to me. And Remodel Health. Go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Save uh, for your organization in 2021 on healthcare while giving the same level of benefits, if not better, to your team. So, um, hey, so what is going to happen five years from now? And I think right now we're in one of those moments where churches are making decisions. Leaders are making decisions. Some of them are going to lead you into progress and growth in the mission in the future. Some of them are not. So I spent some time thinking about this and I want to share with you real quick, seven characteristics. You can find more, by the way, on my blog. Uh, so if you want to get, uh, well, a daily dose of leadership stuff, make sure you just text my name, Carrie, to 33777. Uh, we'll make sure you're on the email list. You won't miss information like this. But anyway, here are the characteristics I've been thinking of. Uh, I think one thing that leaders are doing right now that will probably, they'll regret in the future is betting everything on a physical return to church. I mean, I know it's hard. There's limited resources. It's really hard. Um, But most leaders are seeing at the most 70% of their pre-COVID attendance back at in-person worship. Most are seeing 20 to 40%. And there's a huge group of people that have just dropped out. Plus, there's all the uncertainty about, well, is it safe to be back in the building or what? And, um, you know, churches that are getting 70% of their pre-COVID attendance are celebrating wildly. When did reaching 30% fewer people become a win? 
I, I just I just ask myself that question. So I think if you're betting everything on a physical return to church, that might be something you regret in the future. Uh, second characteristic, success is still measured by the number of people who attend physical locations. So for years, we've said, well, how many people were attending? What did they give, right? That, let's be honest, those are the metrics that most of us pay attention to. But what you measure as a leader influences what you value. So start getting better online metrics. Try to figure out who am I reaching? What can I do? And how can we increase engagement? I mean, your whole city is online. And that leads us to the third characteristic of uh, churches that will be in decline five years from now. Online ministry is seen as an afterthought or lesser form. So I know you have limited resources, but if you kind of go back to your pre-COVID understanding of what the internet is, you're probably going to regret that. The internet is not going away anytime soon and everybody you want to reach is online. So do I think physical gatherings are here to stay? Absolutely, but the internet is just bigger and I think you can reach more people. All right, characteristic number four, all feedback comes from their echo chamber. So, I mean, if you want confirmation that everything in the future is going to be based on in-person attendance, go ahead. You can find that. You'll find your friends who affirm what you believe. You can find some articles online and some posts that are like, yeah, it's all about in-person. And of course, the algorithm of social media actually means that if you click on certain articles, it will give you more of that type of content. So you can easily surround yourself by people who just say you're 100% right, bet it all on a physical return to church. So different opinions lead to better decisions. As I already said, you know, next week we have Nick Walenda. And it's like, what can you learn from a tightrope walker? I think you can learn a lot. So try to find somebody who doesn't agree with you and somebody who's doing it differently. I think you will make better decisions. Okay, characteristic number five. They, Churches in Decline, went back quickly to three songs and a message as their service formats. Look, almost everyone's realized, even, even the smallest and most conservative churches have realized what we were doing doesn't translate well online. So most of us have innovated and now we've got like sets on the stage and uh, we've mixed it up, we've shortened the message. And um, when you go back to in-person worship, it's three songs and a message. Um, okay, that's fine, but what are you gonna do for the internet? Uh, some pastors, you heard JP Pocluda talk about this, hired YouTubers to help with the message creation and delivery. And so I just think we have to get a little bit more experimental in our format moving forward. Okay, characteristic number six of the new characteristics of churches that will be in decline five years from now. The church building, not the home or community, was reestablished as the sole locus of ministry. One thing COVID has shown me is we are really addicted to our buildings and take away our buildings, we're all a little bit lost. And what's happened is I think... In a lot of cases, the home is the new locus for life and for ministry. Work shifted home, shopping shifted home. Thank you, Amazon. Thank you, you know, DoorDash. Uh, dining, like eating, has shifted home. And I think church has shifted home. So I think that could even potentially impact architecture, how we design our homes in the future. And churches that say, hey, you got to be in our building at this time to grow in your faith or to meet Jesus, I I just think that is a limited strategy. And then number seven, the leaders excluded Gen Z from the inner leadership circle. I have still a fairly young team, including one Gen Z member on my team on the inner leadership circle. And um, generational differences are not overblown. Um, young leaders think differently. And if you think Gen Z is still in elementary school, no, they've graduated from college already. And what happens is, particularly when senior pastors are mostly in their 50s these days, is you look at a 21-year-old and go, it's still a kid. It's like, no, 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 no. You were probably leading something when you were 21. 
invite them to the leadership table. They are digital natives. All right, they were 10 years old when YouTube was born and 12 when the iPhone was launched. So they have consumed and created content differently than any generation. And you will actually be reverse mentored by them. So uh, I think that can really help you as you think about the future. So um, I would want to not be making those decisions right now. Um, you can get a full version of this on my blog. Uh, if you just head on over to kerryneuhoff.com, you'll see an article on this and much more. And again, love to add you uh, along with 70,000 other leaders to a daily email I send out. You can text Kerry, C-A-R-E-Y to 33777. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Back next time with a fresh episode. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.